and with it comes fear. Great many fears, but for you and I as Christian people, we have been transformed from one form into another. And in doing so, when you become a Christian, there becomes a pattern change. There, there is this mechanism, how we do life, how we think about life, the things we say, the things we do, all those things. There's new patterns that has to be created in our life as new creations. And so one of those is this notion of fear and for you and I to be overcoming fear. That's this new pattern. We're not gripped like we used to be. There's reasons for that that we'll share, but there's a new way of doing life, and fear to the Christian must be overcome, has the means of which it can be overcome. And so we'll see some of this today. We'll finish next week. But Revelations, and I realize we're parachuting into Revelations, which is a very dangerous thing. <laughs> but I just want to point something out in verses 9 through 11 about why and how. So you can see this picture of God is taking you as a Christian from what you used to be, a slave to sin, into freedom and righteousness, and your life begins to transform. The thoughts and processes, and one of those is fear. Verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Our objective today is to see what does it overtake to overcome fear and what we talked about, the very foundation of where this is generated is idolatry. It is misplaced worship. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is this human notion of creating something other than recognizing who the living and true God is. It's this, purpose, this purposeful, willful displacement, if you will, of the one true and living God. That's what idolatry becomes. That is Satan's deception. So in verse 9, he is the deceiver of the whole world. What is his deception? What is, he, what is he deceiving us all in? Just misrepresenting the nature and character of God. That's, that's the picture you get when you go to Genesis 3. That's the picture of what you see in the book of Genesis. God is like this. Satan comes and says, no, he's not. He's ripping you off. You can do this and be like him. And so he mischaracterizes the character, nature, and goodness of God, and it becomes idolatrous, and it becomes sinful. That's what was produced from the very beginning, and when that happens, we talked about this, where power and truth in its beauty and completeness gets separated. Only Jesus Christ can hold those two together, knowing in yourself that that's not going to hurt you. But when power and truth get separated, truth is always the one that gets subverted, and people in power always abuse it to other people. That's the oppression and the affliction that comes. And so if you hear and listen to our culture, our godless culture, to clarify, that's what they're saying about Christian people. That's what they're saying about God. That's what they're saying about Jesus Christ. It's Christianity and all of its, its foundational issues. That's what's oppressive. That's what's really going on. They're suppressing the freedom that I have. My question would be is, 
free to do what exactly? And when you have that conversation, what it comes down to is, well, I just want to be free to sin. That's what I do. Granted, that's what we all did before we knew Christ. And so Christ has to be thrown off, has to be dethroned, has to be pushed out of everything in culture, everything in life, to assume secularity, to assume sin and the slavery that it contains. And that's what I believe that the waging of this battle is being lived out in our culture. That's what you're seeing on the ground, if you will. And so the insight that Scripture gives you and me, that God has revealed and given us, is this behind-the-scenes look at what this is, what's happening. The, the, our hearts, your heart. We get to pull it back and go, oh, that's what's really going on. It's the worship of other gods and what those gods like and what those gods do. And when I create them, man, God is great. <laughs> Because he's doing everything I want, right? That's too small a God, by the way, which is why you're fearful. Because when you recognize that, if you're it, there is no way you can manage like all the things that come. That's what generates all this fear. Jesus said this in John chapter 8. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does. There is this removal of sin, in other words, that's going to take place. What else is happening is somebody straight up is lying. Somebody's not telling the truth. Either sin is oppressive or it is not. Either sin is destructive in everything it touches or it's not. The scope, the size, the, whatever it is, doesn't matter. It's destructive. It doesn't build up, doesn't edify, doesn't do anything. It just destroys. It lays waste to everything it touches. That is either true or it's not true. Paul points this out in Romans chapter 6. That's his argument in Romans chapter 6. Do we continue in sin? Should we continue in sin? That's the connection. If I get more grace when I sin, well, man, let's just go all out. And God's going to just keep pouring it out. And he says, obviously, no. You don't get to keep doing that because you died to it, so you can't have it both ways. That's in a nutshell. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Can you see it? That's the behind-the-scenes look of what's going on and where fear comes from. See, the godless will persecute, they will pressure, they will make sin normal and conform to a culture. It will be celebrated. It will be honored. And if you, not being in slavery anymore to that, but slave to righteousness, stand up, say something, have the confidence and the will to do so, you will be persecuted. You won't be motivated by the fear that they are bringing. And once again, God will show himself true and faithful as he always does. His character cannot be suppressed as much as Romans 1 will say that's what we're doing. But ultimately, it is not possible for him to be suppressed. And so what you see is in verse 10, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Jesus Christ has come, past tense. It's already here. It's already acting. It's already moving. So what's the so what of all of that? Well, the so what is this? We're talking about ultimate power. We're talking about ultimate authority. And Satan doesn't have it. How do we know that? Because 
this text says he's been thrown off. He is no longer king of the hill. We used to play that in school in the wintertime. Did you guys do that? Big piles of snow. It was awesome until the recess people, the teachers said, get off, they're going to hurt somebody. And then they'd go back in and we'd go back up there again. <laughs> but that's what's happening in a silly little version. Satan has been kicked off the mountain. He's been thrown down. What's the implication for you and I to understand? He no longer has that kind of power. He cannot have that kind of power anymore. He does not have ultimate authority. He does not have any of that. He has been displaced. He has been overcome. Why is that important to you? Because if you are in Christ and make the connection, when you are in Christ, that same power that has overthrown Satan is in you so you can overcome. Isn't that amazing? That's the gift that you have in this life, to overcome, to be victorious in it. So you and I must understand this notion of what we're talking about, what Scripture is taking us through, to be clear, this is only applicable to those in Christ. It doesn't apply any other way. It only applies to his church, to his body, in other words. How is that? Look at verse 11. The they in verse 11 here, who are they? Who is he referring to? They're saints. Now, right away, when you hear that word, what do you think? Oh, I'm not one. I'm not perfect. Okay, once again, let's displace with that, shall we? When you are in Christ, you are what? A saint. You are perfected. Before you were Christ, this is the distinction that Paul's making. You were enslaved to sin. You were over here. Once you are removed from that, he is moving you to a new place. The, the term repentance in Scripture is defection. It's like when you defect nations. I'm leaving this one. I'm becoming a citizen in this one. That's the picture that you get in Scripture. And when you do that, he makes you a saint. Now, I understand in our context, you and I both get up and look in the mirror and go, wow, yeah, not perfect. Right, you're not. Which is why you need the gospel more and more every day, right? It's not this is one-time thing. The gospel is moving you throughout all of eternity. It's an amazing truth to understand that he has the power and the authority, the ultimate power, because Satan has been thrown down. And so this applies to Christians, those who are no longer sinners. In other words, that's how God sees you. I get it. I sin. I look at the mirror and go, oh, wretched man that I am, just like Paul, the chief of all sinners. I am, I am that person. And yet he still sees me as a saint because he has redeemed me in Christ. It isn't about what I'm doing or not doing. That's the difference and your understanding of who you are and your identity right here as we sit here. It's the difference between someone who goes to church and someone who is the church. It's the difference of someone who can conquer or someone who is conquered. That's the contrast. It's in other words, you have to understand that is your identity. That's why all this critical race theory stuff and, and it's creeping into churches all over the place. That's why that is an, an, it is a, it's heretical. It's only, the only identity we have is in Christ. Everything else stops at the door. Who are the saints? What did they do? They conquered Satan. And this conquering they have and you and I have is twofold. How did they do it? How did they first do it? What, is it? what does it say? Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. <laughs> Scare me, y'all. 
What does it say? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. What is that? That is a direct reference to the gospel. That's the cross of Christ. It's the direct work in what he did to us and for us, whereby Jesus took your sit and debt on and paid the price for you. The wages of sin is what? Death. He took that on for you. That's the gospel. He paid your price. Someone willing and loved you enough to step in to look at you and go, I'm going to take their place. God himself, he creates the judgment. He steps off his, off his if you picture the, this idea of a court, he steps down from being the judge. He steps in the dock. He pushes you aside and say, I'll take the punishment I just gave myself. Does that make sense? That's what's taking place. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. So listen, if you haven't received the gospel, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is by faith, if you don't believe that Jesus is the son of the living God, if you don't believe that he is truly God, truly man, inserted himself in a miraculous way into this, his own creation, that if you don't believe he came to, fulfill, came to earth to fulfill the law of God perfectly, to be your perfect substitution that no one else could, dying for the Father, on his behalf, to make you and I holy. The, the, the idea of him sacrificing himself, the idea of him raised, being raised from the dead, the idea that he is still at this moment alive at the right hand of the Father, at this very moment in time in history, for all eternity. If you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. You haven't repented of your sin. You certainly haven't confessed him as Lord and Savior. You haven't been baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you certainly haven't been gifted with the Holy Spirit that makes you unable to be a conqueror over fear. You have nothing. All you're doing is waking up in the morning, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and gutting this thing out. That's all you have. If that's you, you don't know the salvation that Christ is offering, you don't see and understand his love, you are still a slave to sin. You are still in bondage to it. And in your sin, there is only wrath for you and judgment. There is no power to overcome. That's the first part. The second part is this. The other piece of this overcoming process and being conquering over fear, it says the word of their testimony. They overcame it by the word of their testimony. What is that? It's because of Christ inserting himself into his creation. The acts, the actual physicalness, the acts that he did. Hence Luke's book, Acts. The acts of Christ, the acts of the apostles, the acts of the church. Those things. Christ came in, asserted himself in human history. His life, his death, his resurrection, all of it for those three plus years, real people saw, real people walked, real people talked, real people lived with him. They witnessed it all. Revelations at the beginning of this book the apostle john says this i john your brother and partner in the tribulation remember he's kicked off he's in an island now which he'll say and in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in jesus was on the island called patmos on the account of the word and the testimony of jesus christ why is he there because he saw things he couldn't deny and he preached them and he started to transform a culture and when that happens People in power that don't like that will push really hard to eliminate it. In fact, when it comes perfectly, they'll kill it. That's what they did to Christ. 
And so they take John and they shoot him off to an island somewhere, and he lives out the rest of his days because of the things he saw, the things he testified, the life he had with Christ. That's real testimony. He goes on in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 9, when I opened the fifth seal, when you read this, forget about the, what's being said, but just look at the verbs. I saw, I heard. These are real things, real testimony. And so he says this, I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne, the witness that they did. They were martyred. Stephen would have been one of those he saw. The prophets would have been some of those that he would have seen. Real testimony, and they were killed for it. John, in the Gospel of John 20, we're reminded of this by John himself. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. There are so many miracles, so many things that they couldn't be contained in the books because too many books you get kind of glassy-eyed and you're not reading them anyway, right? There's more evidence we could have written down. But he says in verse 3, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. That's the gospel, right? Look at Specific time in history, a very small window in history of Jesus' ministry, three years from the time he started. He was working with his dad, a wonderful example of being in business with his family business, all that's really cool stuff. That's for another time. However, three years of ministry. How many people were surrounding him? We know at least 12 for sure, right? A very narrow, what I'm getting at is a very narrow group of people saw this actually happen. He didn't reveal himself to you and to me. That was 2,000 years ago in history. Most people who come to know Christ don't get to see him like that. But we do get to see him in his word. That's the testimony. That's the other means in which you overcome. See, the blood that is referring to the word of the testimony, the blood that we're talking about, it's Christ's sacrifice. Christ is the atoning cause, okay? He's the one that starts all this. He's the one that puts this into motion at the cross. The word and the testimony are the bridge, if you will, between that event and your life. That's what's connecting you. That's how you know. We wrote these things down that you may believe and have life in his name. They recognize more people are not going to see him. More people are going to look at this, hear about our testimony, and go, what are you talking about? Right? Christ did all the work. He created the gift of salvation. He gives salvation, and those that receive it are called saints. That's the gift that you and I have been given through faith. Christ made it all. And notice this last piece. In Revelation, the saints hold on to it. You and I are now holding on to this testimony for, for dear life. You and I are gripping this in our life. How so? That's the third key, and this is the critical one to overcoming fear. They did not love their lives even unto death. Isn't that amazing? That's the key to it all. To come to the end of yourselves, Jesus said, again in John, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. 
It's the great paradox of Scripture. It just seems so upside down. But not when you are in ultimate authority, not when you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not when you're the creator of the universe. What's he saying? How do you do that? It's this. Love me above everything else, even your very life. The sum of your years in this physical body, that's, you love me more than that. You love your job, you can love your kids, you can love your family, you can love your stuff. But nothing gets to replace the ultimate slot. That's the difference. And suffering, when it comes for being a saint, is the high calling of God. How do you know that? Because he demonstrated at the cross, right? And listen, if everyone was a martyr, it wouldn't be so good for Christians, would it? There would be no discipleship making, right? <laughs> That's not the point. Certain people are called to go through certain things. Stephen was the first one called to give one sermon and then get stoned because everybody still enslaved in sin, hated what he said. They knew it was right, but they had no intention about submitting and dying and that loving of self, loving the power, loving the resources, loving all the things that they had. They knew exactly what it meant. And they were unwilling. So listen, this is not that you are loathsome about your life, what you have. This is a comparison. Jesus being more valuable than anything. That's his point. Because he is the resurrection and the life. He said, if you love your father, your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. It's just a matter of priorities. That's his point. And if you picture Abraham, go to the Old Testament. He did this with Abraham, so this isn't something he's springing on the church. He did it with Abraham. I need you to go sacrifice your son. Now we think of that and go, oh, man, if God's that way, I don't want to worship that God either. But again, you're formulating something and creating an idol because he's not. God had a plan for all of this. It was to test Abraham, this very thing. And Abraham came to terms with what God had asked him about his own son. How could he do that? What was the word of his testimony? Well, God had given him a promise, him, Abraham. What was the promise? I'm going to bless you, many nations. Well, that's going to flow through who? Isaac. And then it's going to be passed down and passed down until the right time we have Christ, right? Abraham knew that he's picking this up. He's getting this. Okay, God, I love you more, but this makes no sense. Don't think for a moment he's going up there. He's not, he, didn't, he didn't sleep a wink the night before as he's loading and going camping and telling someone, hey, we're going camping to offer our sacrifices. Hey, where's the lamb? Well, God will provide it. All of this knowing that I'm supposed to do this to my very own son, are you kidding me? No way. And yet somehow Abraham overcame his fear of what everybody was thinking, what everybody would thought looking solely to God, knowing, okay, I have this relationship with the God of the universe, so if I do this, the promise has, to, he's going to have to resurrect him. That's what scripture says, right? He got it. See, freedom from fear comes when the distorted view of God you once held while you were a slave in sin and under Satan's control that way, of the distortion of who God is and his character, is replaced with a true and clear understanding of who God is. 
Why is that so vital? Because the only way to worship God is in spirit and in truth. No lies, no sin in other words. Nothing can happen along those lines for you to truly worship him. And the only means in which you can worship him is the testimony that you have by the apostles. The only means in which that came was through the cross. You see how it's all connected? See, Paul understood this. He got there. And I must confess to you, I am not there. But I want to be when those moments come. Acts 20, 24 says this. Paul referring to himself, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understood it. He writes it again in Philippians. If I live, it'll be for Christ. If I die, that's eh, good for me. I'm paraphrasing, of course. <laughs> right? I'm going to live here and do this. This is my plan. This is my purpose. But if I die, it's going to be good for me. He had overcome his fear. So this is for you, dear Christian, dear saint, beloved. This is for you. But please know this. Something else to really to point out. It doesn't mean you can expect the perfect cure for all your fears in this life. Remember we mentioned this last week. Even the strongest of us are not fearless or without fear. We don't overcome it perfectly every time but we should be maturing and overcoming and overcoming. And picture when you came to Christ, where you were, when you knew him, when it was fresh, when you are still a baby in Christ, what your life was like. I mean, picture, picture that concept of, of, if you know history, the Holocaust and when the, the Allies came to those internment camps and the concentration camps and all those things and how um, they're just skin and bones, they're, they're emaciated, they're everything. They're, I mean, there's hardly any clothes. Some of them are naked. You picture that. That's what sin does. And God takes you from there and fills you out, fills you up, reclothes you, nourishes you so you're healthy once again. It doesn't happen overnight. And in those moments, you should be able to look back. The moment you came out of that sinful prison cell, so to speak, where you were, what you were like, and you can look back now and go, wow, God's really done a work in my life, hasn't he? I'm not that anymore. I'm here. I'm not there yet either, but I'm not that. <laughs> right? That's the maturity you and I should be seeing in our life. The sanctification process, he is growing. That's why we say it, grow in Christ-likeness. Is the life he's delivered me from, the people that are still in that, the people you work with, the people that are in your life that are still there, do they see you that way? Do they see the difference in your life that God has made in your life? Does your testimony match up with the life you're living now? So it doesn't come perfectly. So our prayer should be, I believe, but help my unbelief. And one last thing real quick. Don't think just having it up here, head knowledge is going to do it for you. That it'll make you over the top and overcome fear. See, to me, that's like going to the doctor when you're sick and he gives you a prescription. And you got the, you got the, you got the witness, you got the testimony on a piece of paper, but you never go fill the prescription. <laughs> you know it. You even know where to go to get it. But you never apply it to your life. It never gets inside of you, in other words. You know, answers, especially, I was always hard on students, because I was one. I grew up in a church for a long time. <laughs> you know the answers, right? 
I was probably more harder on that group of students in my ministry and kids than their friends who didn't know Christ because they didn't know him. They had no reference. But they knew the answers. But you could tell it stopped right there in their own life. It has to be put into practice. This has to be medicine taken. So let me diagnose some things real quick. We talked about this already. Fear of man, not on the table. God says, no, you're not going to do that. The distinctions that you and I make, fear of man is not one of them. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It doesn't help you at all in this process. So we don't want that one. We want what God has. We want to be overcomers. We want to engage in the battle. That's the fear of the God, fear of God. And all those scriptures of that should be coming flooding in. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those things that start rolling in our minds. That's the Christian's desire. It has to be your desire. That's what has to be cultivated in your life so people can see, oh, there is actually a difference in your life. You're, not that, you're truly not that way anymore. And so we saw last week there's a good way to do that and a bad way to do that. Grace and mercy the fear that leads to repentance and so on. The ungodly fear was, is just God's upstairs with a ball bat or the lightning bolts. He's just waiting for you to screw up so he can just throw one down on you. That's, that's the ungodly fear. Let me make some distinctions about fear too. There is a natural fear. Natural fear is because of our fallen stature innate uh, state. We understand that's why you're, you, you keep your kids out of the road. I mean, there's, it's why you don't do certain things, right? And there's certain natural fears that are good for you in that sense to keep you protected. The Puritan minister, John Flava, so remember this is 300 years ago, describes it as the, it's hard to even say some of their words because <laughs> it's really good reading though. Uh, perturbation of the mind, meaning being perturbed. They just add more syllables. <laughs> Your mind's perturbed. It's agitated. That's natural fear. Why? Because you understand. You look out there and go, hey, something is going to harm me. There's impending evil or there's danger coming in my life. I want to avoid that. I want to you know, circumvent that. And that's, that's the natural kind of fear because of our fallen nature. It comes from Adam. It's why Adam ran and hid. He understood this exactly when he heard God in the garden. There is a natural fear that comes because he knew exactly what he did, so he runs and hides. Why? He's expecting to die. That was the cause and effect of what he did. We fear what threatens us. We fear those things, and our response to avoid those things is natural. We do them as much as possible. You do a th a threat assessment every morning. You did it when you came here. You got in your car. We do this all the time, and some of it we don't even think about anymore. But natural fear, when it goes unchecked, turns into sinful fear. See, Christ, remember, came to set you free. He is not interested in playing around the edges of your life. He's radically transforming it, and this is one of those means in which he does. See, the gospel's main purpose is not to make you a nice person. It will do that. There will be a morality that comes with it from what you used to do and the distinction that God's make. That's the clash that you're seeing in culture of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is true. But his ultimate purpose is to make you 
holy, able to stand before him and worship. Notice that in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, when you read that, everywhere in Scripture where unrepentant sin or unbelief shows up like Pharaoh and God shows up, when they're in the same moment, time, and place, what do you end up seeing in those moments? When David is bringing the ark, instead of carrying it like they were prescribed to do, it's on a cart. Thought it was a great idea. When the cart tips, what happens? One of the servants touches it. He's gone, just like that. Pharaoh's unbelief. Where is your God? I don't know this God. Every place you see that, unbelief or sin, and God is in the same place, in the same moment, in the same time, judgment comes. And the only means in which he can avoid that is for you to be in Christ. It cannot exist. Sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy and just God. So natural fear turns into sinful fear when unbelief or distrust of God moves you to another thought about who he is, about his character, what he's like, or what he's doing. And when you and I as Christians fail to trust in God's promises, the scripture, we lose that testimony, we let go. Whenever danger shows up, whenever those things show up because of the gospel, that's a demonstration of little or either no faith, and we saw that in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus took his disciples on the boat ride, didn't he? Storm, they're sinking. They, you know, I would have thought the same, we're going to die. They responded just like you and I would have. Total fear. But what was missing? What did they forget? Who was in the boat with them? <laughs> they forgot their testimony. God was in the boat. God's the one that can do it. He's the one that can fulfill it. He did that all through his ministry. Christians throughout history have had to face storms in life. Some greater, some lesser. Some are martyred, some are not. Whatever that spectrum is, from persecution to ostracization to suffering, ultimately to our own mortality and death, or just the hardness of life. In those moments, the temptation is to not trust in who God is, to not trust in what he's doing, that I shouldn't have to be in this. And when we do, we succumb to sinful fear. Lastly is godly fear. That's the notion of a child's relationship to a father. And again, I understand some of you, like my incredibly awesome, wonderful wife, has no relationship in that way. It wasn't good for her, in other words, and so this is one of those moments when you go, Father, well, I have that picture, and it immediately comes to your mind, doesn't it? And this is where we're going to run into some trouble, because when you port that and take those characteristics, this is what's happened to me, and apply those to God, you just committed idolatry. That's not his character. That's not God's nature. I'm sorry if that's what you had to, do, to, to go through. I'm very sorry that my wife didn't have that, that what, she, what she desired as a daughter. She didn't get that. But that's not God. And so we have this childlike fear, awe, wonder, and love of a heavenly father who is sanctified and transforming in his name. That's what he's doing to you. Therefore, God's gift of fear to you is just that. It's a gift to you. This awe, this reverence, that he is not sitting up there waiting for you to mess up so he can show his power. That's not what he's doing 
He has supernaturally infused you, this new life in you, so you can live and perform what he wants you to perform, this transformational process in your own life. Jeremiah 32, 40, I will put my fear in their hearts. He's putting it in your heart. This fear creates a love for the word. It's like finding great treasure, Proverbs 1.19 says. This fear motivates us to do what pleases. I, when I was here, I couldn't, when I'm trapped in sin, there's no way for me to please him. But now I'm, I'm free from that. Now I can actually please him. Acts 10.35. This fear empowers us to avoid what displeases. If I can please him, then, and I know what pleases him, I now know what displeases him as well. We talked about that last week. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. Just start with Job chapter 1. Read that. Three types of fear. Sinful fear, natural fear, godly fear. How do you overcome them? Oh, let me give you one. Here's a prescription. Here's the, here's the prescription that you need to go and fill before Jesus Christ himself. And it's this. Plumb the depths of the gospel. See, the gospel is more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's more than just a mere promise. And those means in which we understand that. God, the creator of the universe, God the Father, God who sent his one and only son so you would no longer be in prison, that you no longer be enslaved to sin, that you don't have to be like this, has entered in a covenant with you. That's a huge distinction to me. It is covenantal. It's not whimsical. It's not just, hey, I'm going to do this, you do that. It is covenantal. Why is that such a big deal? Because he knows exactly who you are. Let me ask it this way. If you were ultimate in authority and power, and you saw how you actually live and act right now, would you enter a covenant with you? Would you do that? But God did it for you. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing to me. I know exactly what I'm like. I know exactly what I deserve. And it is nothing like the gospel. Absolutely nothing like what he's offering to those who know Christ. He already knows your fears. He knows your doubts. He knows your insecurities and all the places they manifest themselves. If you're in a marriage relationship, all those things that you know about each other and your kids, your job, all those things, he already knows them. And he still enters in with you. He enters into this relationship with an oath. Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he, God, had no one greater to swear by, he swore by whom? Himself. There is no place else to go. There is nothing else. It's only God and all of his authority. He said this, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. This is to Abraham. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by someone greater than themselves, and an altar of disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show it more convincingly to his heirs, heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. What was the oath? The cross was the oath. That amazes me. That God, knowing who I am, knowing humanity, would still love me beyond my capacity to love myself and still do what he did. 
The God of heaven, pure, holy, ties himself to his people. But his people are sinful at the beginning. He sees them all this way. And yet he, he sees them past that. When I think of raising my kids and all the things that they did and the discipline, it's like I wonder sometimes if I didn't see them past that. Yes, you have to discipline because you love them. But if I didn't somehow frame that, you know what I mean? That I that categorized them. I saw this happen with kids in school. Oh, you're like this. And they got pigeonholed into something. It was so hard for them to get out of that because that's how everybody thought they were. Sorry. There's one boy in particular that meant a lot to me. And they did that to him. Imagine a God who loves you beyond that. God giving himself completely to a people who are his enemies still, but knowing they won't be at some point in their life. It's a covenant that he enters, so he would be their God, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8. Listen, if you are here today as a believer in Christ, he is your father. He is a good, good God. You have been adopted into his family. Therefore, if God is your father, what can man do to you? What are you so afraid of? Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul. I will never leave you or forsake you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Scripture goes on and on of what God is doing for his people. And the fears you have the fears I have only come in the name of humanity, only in man's name. God doesn't bring them on. They only come from man. That's how temptation works. God is not tempting you, but he will offer you a way out. He'll give you deliverance. He'll give you peace. He'll give you all those things that he desires for you in the name of the Lord. Not because you or I or anything. It's not him. Just like when they came out of Egypt, God wants to destroy him. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. What are all the nations going to think if you destroy these people that you're not strong enough to get them to where they need to go? But God's more than strong enough to get you to where he wants you to go. He will deliver you. The gospel of grace is knowing he is good. He is a good, good father. It's knowing in that instant then that no matter what happens in my life or your life, it will be good for you. It doesn't mean you enjoy what you're going through all the time. You maybe went, like I did, count it all joy, and I'm just supposed to be happy all the time. No, that's not that. That's not that at all. When you lose someone you love and you bury them, there's nothing happy about that. Nothing whatsoever about the pain people suffer in this world about the evil that's going on in this nation, everything around this world, there's nothing good about that. But yet God will use that as only he can use it. God will use sin sinlessly for the benefit of his people. He is a good, good father. And anybody who says otherwise has just created an idol and diminished his character and built one in of his own life but it doesn't make it any easier to go through those things. He has taken on the role of your Father in heaven, and in doing so, 
entering that covenant, he is the one providing for you. It is now his responsibility to do that. That's how you overcome fear. It's his divine wisdom. It's his divine mercy. It's his divine pleasure that is affording you the assurance that in the midst of all your hardship, the midst of all your fears, the midst of all your anger, all those things, even, even in death, the king of terrors, I think that's how Luther described it, the king of death, even in those terrors, he is more than adequate to help you overcome. And that's his covenantal promise to you and to me as a saint, as a follower of Christ, you who have been called. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? The enemies that we still have, what they might do, what they might say, what you might lose, more things and stuff. What they can do is limited to this life because your life is secure in Christ. His great mercy has caused you to be born again through Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is untainted in any way. And where is it kept? In heaven. It's in heaven for you, waiting for the redemption of your glorified person. Who's guarding it? The Father. Who's provided it for you? The Father. So what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of what God will do when maybe in a moment it's a weakness? Fear seems to overtake you? Listen, he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the thrones, he sets them forever. They are exalted, Job 37. He doesn't lose track of you. Even in those moments, he is a good, good father. And you have to plumb the depths of the gospel. It wasn't just a one-time thing for you, and now you're something, and that was it. And now you just go on with life. He will not turn you away as a son or daughter. You will remain in the house. It's incumbent upon you to understand these things about who, is, who he is. He will not forsake you. He will not put you out. He has not forgotten you. If that's what you think, because I know I have from time to time, that fear of God is forgetting that he's going to forget. It's impossible for him to do so. You have nothing to fear. He loves you. But he wants you to be in his house. Do you know him? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to say you're willing to die? That you're willing to no longer be a slave to sin, but serve him as Savior and Lord? Giving up everything that comes when the moment you receive him, that he will guide your steps, that he will shape your life. Many ways in which you're not accustomed to, will grow into know and love, know that you can trust him every step of the way, knowing there will be hardships that will come, knowing all of those things. Do you know him? Don't stay in that house. Come to know who Jesus Christ is. 
He is your only hope. There is nothing for you over here but fear. That's all there is here. And ultimately, it's death. No one else is offering anything better. No one would devise such a thing. It's only Jesus Christ. Do you know him?